first episode of Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment in 2022. In our last podcast, we had a great discussion with Tim Shepherds on the question whether to remove syndesmotic screws routinely or not. We will stay with the topic of ankle fractures. Today, we have the honor to have Professor Stefan Rammelt and Dr. Pauline Neumann with us. They just recently published an astonishing study entitled Ankle Fractures Involving the Posterior Malleolus, Patient Characteristics and Seven-Year Results in 100 Cases in the Archives of Orthopedic and Trauma Surgery. Professor Stefan Rammelt is the head of the Center of Foot and Ankle Surgery at the University Center of Orthopedics, Trauma and Plastic Surgery at the University Hospital of Dresden, a visiting professor at the University of Utah, as well as the Karls University in Prague. He's an internationally renowned and rewarded surgeon and researcher. He has published more than 200 peer-reviewed articles and, amongst others, is the section editor for Foot and Ankle at the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma, the vice president of the German Association for Foot and Ankle, as well as a member of the AO Foot and Ankle Expert Group. Paulina is one of his residents and the first author of the paper. Paulina, would you be so kind and give us a brief introduction and summary of your paper? The aim of our study was to assess the medium to long-term clinical and functional outcome of ankle fractures with a PM fragment in a larger patient population. In a retrospective chart review, we identified all patients treated surgically at our institution between 2003 and 2015 for ankle fractures involving the posterior malleolus. 100 patients were evaluated clinically and radiographically at an average follow-up of seven years. The mean age of the patient at time of fracture was 60 years, and two-thirds of the patients were women. Four questionnaires were used to assess the treatment outcome. The American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society Ankle Heinfeld Scale, the Foot Function Index, the Olot Moleander Ankle Score, and the Short Form Health 36. We achieved good overall results in all scores, which is in line with the results of other studies over the last 10 years. Posterior malleolar fractures were classified according to Batonicek and Rammelt. In general, Bartonicek-Rammel type 1 fractures were treated non-operatively, type 2 and 3 fractures, if displayed and or impacted, were treated with an open reduction and direct posterior to anterior screw and plate fixation. Type 4 PM fractures, mm. these are large triangular fragments, were treated with indirect anterior to posterior screw fixation if a transfibular visual control of reduction was possible. Otherwise, direct fixation via a posterolateral approach was performed. With this treatment regimen, good overall results could be achieved throughout all fracture patterns. Patients with Batonicek-Rammelt type 3 and 4 fracture displayed a significant female preponderance. The size of the PM fragment had no prognostic value. Patients with an open fracture had a significantly lower foot function index compared to those with closed fractures. These were 46 versus 15%. There was a trend to lower outcome scores with anterior or posterior shift of the distal fibula of one millimeter within the tibial incisora. Patients who underwent primary internal fixation had significantly superior results with a mental health component summary score of the SF36 than patients who underwent staged internal fixation. 
there is a statistically significant correlation between no fixation of the posterior malaria's fragment and the insertion of a syndesmotic position in school. In conclusion, we can say with an individualized treatment protocol, tailored to the CT-based assessment of PM fractures, favorable, medium, and long-term results can be expected. With anterior reduction and stable internal fixation, the mere presence of a PM fragment does not lead to a poor outcome in ankle fractures. The size of the PM fragment alone is not of prognostic relevance. Exact reconstruction of the articular surface, including impaction of the plafond, restoration of the tibial incisura and tibial fibula alignment, as well as syndesmotic stability, are prerequisites for favorable treatment results. PM fixation provides direct bone-to-bone -bone fixation of the syndesmosis and significantly reduces the need for additional transsyndesmotic fixation if a screw or flexible implant. Pauline, thank you very much for this summary and for performing this uh, really outstanding study. I think it's remarkable for several reasons. For example, the number of patients enrolled. With 100 patients included in your study, it's among the biggest on this topic, I believe. Furthermore, the follow-up with a mean of seven years is outstanding, and you assess not only the fracture morphology and the surgical treatment in detail, which is missing in a lot of studies on this topic, actually, but you also assess various clinical outcome parameters and patient-reported outcome measures. Despite this astonishing number of patients, you did have a loss to follow-up on a rate of 64%. We all know that performing retrospective studies is difficult and to enroll as many patients as possible is always a great task. But did you compare the demographic and fracture details between those patients lost to follow up and the ones you included in order to assess possible selection bias? We looked at that and we did not find significant differences. The reasons are that uh, long follow-up are usually the same. Patients either have moved to distant locations or they did not want to come for a follow-up. But we looked at the data and uh, Paulina is also now looking at the uh, complications for all the patients. So she screened 300 patients for possible complications. So we have data of about 300 patients and the, the 100 patients that really appeared in person are viable and a good sample. Stefan, you're lucky to have Paulina to do all the work up for <laughs> oh, you. <yeah. laughs> and if we look at these midterm, almost long-term results that you presented, as Hans said, those studies are rare where we have a follow-up of more than two years. Your overall results are astonishing good. You only had two ankles fused and a mean OMA score of 80, FFI score of 17. And this, compared to previous studies, appears pretty good. Do you have any explanation why your results compared to previous studies are at least in the, in the upper 10% of outcome scores? I think this is true if you look at more historic studies. And these are the studies like Yaskulka and others, which are frequently cited, that tremalarial fractures have worse outcomes than bimalarial or monomalarial fractures. But these fractures were treated 25 years ago. And in these times, we all know there was the old one-third, one-fourth dogma, 
Most of the fractures were treated indirectly from the front. And prior to Haraguchi's study, nobody did a CT scan to really look at how the posterior looks like. So I think if you look at more recent studies, our results compare favorably, but are not outstanding. So, Stefan, you just mentioned the Haraguchi classification, but you, together with Jan Bartonicek, previously introduced your own classification system for fractures of the posterior When I get you right, you are saying that your classification guides the treatment and furthermore is of prognostic value. Could you uh, maybe elaborate a little more on this and tell our listeners the most important aspects and implications of your classification system? Yeah, there are two aspects that are probably different from Haraguchi's, which is really a good one, an important first step towards the understanding of these fractures. Haraguchi, however, looked only at the axial CT scan, while we looked at the three-dimensional outline of the fractures. So we started with the most simple one as type 1, and the biggest one is type 4. And so, in fact, it can guide treatment, which is, uh, I think, the most important for present-day surgeons. And as Paulina already mentioned, we uh, treat almost all of the type 1 fractures non-operatively because they don't involve the incisure. That's the main feature of that fractures. They can be very broad, but they're all shell-like. There are avulsions of the posterior cortex and, of course, of the posterior syndesmosis, and they do not involve the incisura. So incisural involvement is one of the key features of that classification. Type 2 is a small triangular fragment. Type 3 has that medial extension, which is important for reduction and probably merits another medial approach or just a posteromedial approach. And type 4, these are the only ones which we think can be treated in the classical manner because the threads of the screw really fit into that big fragment. So you can get compression across the screw and you can assess them through the fibula fracture. If you have patients that you don't want to put in a prone position, particularly elderly patients, this can be quite meaningful. And also, in the meantime, there are several studies out on intercalary fragments, and it has been shown that particularly type 2 and type 3 fractures have those intercalary fragments, sometimes die-punch fragments, which are, of course, important to look at and important to address, and which can also be associated with an inferior prognosis, as one or two of these studies also found out. So it may be a bit of prognostic value, but most importantly, it should guide treatment. There are so many topics to, to discuss. I guess later on, we're going to also have a chat on, on, on positioning the patient. We, we do it a little differently. We can maybe discuss that. There's one other thing that I would like to ask you, first of all, if you look at the studies, it's always kind of, if you talk about trim, complex trimalleolar fractures with a posterior malleolus, especially when they are multifragmentary, I sometimes find it hard, especially if you look through the studies, on when does the trimalleolar fracture end and where does the pylon fracture start? Do you have any any rule of thumb that you use in your to study to kind of, because you said one of your exclusion criteria were those pylon fractures. How did you differentiate these two entities? So this is basically a matter of convention as there's no general agreement. So our proposal together with Jan Batonicek was if more than half of the incisura is involved, 
or if the medium annulus is fractured as a whole. These are the typical fracture patterns. If you look at the, the pilon map, that would make for a pilon fracture. But many authors consider those posterior malleolar fractures, which have a dipunch fragment or intercalar fragment, as posterior pilon, so as a semi-pilon. For the same reason, you might consider anterior fractures that involve the articular surface, like an anterior pilon or a medial pilon in the supination abduction fractures where there's medial impaction. So impaction might be one criteria to speak about posterior pilon. I find this a little bit uh, distracting. And so I would say posterior if it's less than half a pilon, if it's more than half of the incisura. But that's, that's my proposal and Jan's proposal. There are many different views. And if you hear the term posterior pilon, then probably people mean either the medial extension, so the type 3, or the dipunch fragment in the middle. Stefan, we are getting more and more the idea that these uh, fractures are much more complex than we believed 10 years ago, maybe. When I started my, my residency, the ankle fractures were beginner's fractures. So looking at every aspect, we are getting more and more the idea that these are complex fractures and we need to put a lot of thought into diagnosis and treatment, classification and all that. So in, in your study, I think, Paulina, you also mentioned it in your summary, you observed superior results for the SF36 for patients who were treated primarily by internal fixation compared to patients who first received an external fixator. So what does that mean at your institution in everyday clinic practice? Does that mean that even the complex fractures are treated primarily day and night by whatever surgeon is on call? Or do you still believe that these complex ankle fractures should be fixed by an experienced foot and ankle surgeon. So the, I think the reason for that, and we discussed this briefly, the reason is that the more complex and the more unstable the fracture, the more you feel inclined to put an X-fix on in the first line and then do your CT scan and plan treatment. So I think this is a bit biased because the more stable fractures, that those are who are not subluxed or dislocated, were treated with in one step, whereas fracture dislocations were all treated with primary external fixation, then CT scan, and then definite internal fixation. And I think that's the, the best way to do it. And I would not advise to do that in the middle of the night. That's our approach as well. When talking about CT scans, if I remember it correctly, you had a pre-op CT scans of about half, a little more than half of your patients. I guess this is somewhat due to the historic cohort. Uh, and you had a post-op CT scan of only 13 patients. Has that evolved? Because if we go through literature, especially those, and, and I think you showed in your data as well, that the quality of reduction of the distal tibiofibular joint is, is a important factor. Have you changed your standard of care in your hospital regarding pre-op and post-op CT imaging? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. This is because we looked at partly at more historical facts because we wanted a long-term follow-up. Nowadays, we see a posterior malleolar fragment, or if we suspect one, we do a CT scan. The same is true if we suspect an anterior tibial fragment, which has lots of similarities. And post-operative CT scan is done whenever we fix an unstable syndesmosis 
with indirect fixation. So either a screw or a tightrope, because then we want to evaluate the positioning of the fibula within the incisura. When fixing the posterior lintus directly, we rarely have to do a syndesmotic screw. So in these cases, if we have some doubt on the quality of reduction, particularly with intercalary fragments and multiple fragments, then we still do a post-op CT, but not for all of them. But those who need any kind of indirect fixation of the syndesmosis, we do this. And as you know, there are always some surprises after that. <laughs> That's very true. And I'm sure that nowadays you probably do a lot of CT scans pre-op to plan the operation. And I know, Stefan, that you put a lot of thoughts into the bony evulsions of the anterior syndesmosis as well. You tend to call it the fourth malleolus to stress the importance. So from my understanding, even uh, also in the patients included in this study, whenever the bony evulsion is big enough to fix it with a screw, you fix it with a screw. Did I get that right? If it's displaced, yeah, it's typically those larger fractures are displaced because the syndesmosis just pulls on it. It's the same for even small avulsions. Then we rather fix it with a, with a suture anchor, but these avulsions can in fact go into the incisura, the anterior incisura, and then even prevent a good reduction of the distal fibula. Unfortunately, there's not much out on the fracture anatomy of the anterior fragments. We just finished to look up a lot of our patients and those from, uh, from Jan in Prague, from whom we have uh, CT scans to get an idea how these fractures look like. But uh, there's several studies that show that a malplaced anterior malleolus or anterior tibial fragment can lead to a malreduction of the distal fibula. And we all know this has a poor prognostic outcome. So if I get it right, there are two predominant considerations on this fourth malleolus. On the one hand, you don't want this fragment to impinge while you reduce the distal fibular joint, or then even the aftermath. We had a few cases which actually just got, even though the distal tibial fibular, fibular joint was reduced anatomically, they got an impingement of those fragments which weren't resorbed by the body and had to be resected secondarily. And on the other hand, you would fix them either by a screw or some sort of internal bracing to kind of close the ring to, to have a stable syndesmotic complex? Yeah, we have a low threshold when we do a lateral approach to a, a seemingly easy Weber A or Weber B fracture to explore the anterior syndesmosis to exclude even that just parts of the ligament are within the incisura and also within the joint. We look at the lateral gutter, we look for osteochondral fractures or chondral lesions at the lateral part of the talus where most of them are situated. And once we see a bony avulsion, we have a low threshold to just fix it. If we have a CT analysis and we see it's a completely non-displaced small fragment, then of course it's up to the surgeon, particularly when he also has a big posterior fragment that we fix from behind, then it's up to the surgeon to really uh, fix it in addition. But I think the anterior medialis has a lot of similarities with the posterior one. It can involve both the incisura and the joint. And if any of them is displaced, that's bad. And it can even have an impaction that's not so frequent, but it happens. And to our experience, it's between 10 and 15 percent of patients and they can really have bad outcomes. So it, the goals are always the same to restore the joint congruity and to restore the shape of the incisura so that the fibula knows where to go. 
and then third to produce a stable syndesmosis. And the more we fix those anterior and posterior fragments, the less we need syndesmotic screws. And I think you found the same in, in your study a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's very true. Then in the study you mentioned, we only fixed the posterior malleolus fragment, and then we did an external rotation test on the fluoroscopy. And we observed that we needed significantly less syndesmotic screws or dynamic fixations. But nowadays we are tending more and more to look at, as you do, uh, to look at the anterior aspect as well. In the cases where we have a posterior malleolus fracture, almost in all the cases we see either a bony or a ligament injury of the anterior aspect of the syndesmosis too. And then we now tend to brace or to fix the anterior syndesmosis as well, as Sebastian said, to close the ring of the syndesmosis. But Stefan, you mentioned previously that when I understood you right, you are placing the patient in prone position whenever you fix the posterior malleolus fragment. How do you fix anterior evulsion if the patient is placed in prone position? In the same way, I would do it from the supine position. We add a small anterolateral approach directly over the evulsed fragment. It may be the anterior tibia or it may be the anterior fibula. And this can be done with the patient's prone with a pad underneath the distal tibia. And it's a small incision which is parallel to the posterolateral incision about two centimeters, you either sit down, which is not so bad after one hour of surgery, or the assistant just bends the knee and puts the leg up a bit, and then you have a direct nice view on the anterior malleolus in those patients. If, of course, if there's no medium malleolar fracture, you could alternatively put the patient in a lateral position, as, as you prefer, we sometimes do that, or in a floppy lateral position, then you can do it all, all around. I personally have now customized myself to that position, and it works quite good. It's also very important for the anterior fibula fragment, the so-called Wagstaff fragment, because if we fix the posterior from behind, in most of the cases, we also fix the distal fibula from behind. With the posterior anti-glide plate, which is presumably more stable and definitely better for the comfort of the patients because the posterior plates, they rarely feel if you don't put them too distal. But with the screw you put in from behind, you can, of course, displace a Wexler fragment or you can avoid it from being in a good position. So it's a good idea to make a small incision, maybe even put a clamp between the posterior and anterior fibula and then put your screw from the plate right through the Wexler fragment and everything is fixed at once. That sounds very easy when you explain it, Stefan. Actually, I started in prone position too, and I had to adopt this because I had problems fixing the medial malleolus in prone position already. Uh, because I was so used to fix the medial malleolus in supine position, it was very, very difficult for me to fix them in prone position. And this is why we changed now placing the position in floppy lateral so we can do everything as we are accustomed. And we can have the advantages of the lateral positioning for the postmalleolus combined with the advantages of the supine position for the anterior parts. But I wasn't able to really do it well in prone position. Yeah, you have to feel comfortable with what you're doing. And so if that's for you, if that works for you, that's just perfect. 
All right. And one more question regarding the way of reducing the posterior malleolus fragment. You said in 63% of your patients, you perform some sort of fixation of the posterior malleolus fragment. And as I understood, 49% were openly reduced and 14% were fixed by AP screws. Is that due to the retrospective nature, as you said, because it's uh, also an older patient sample you included? Or do you nowadays have a rate of 15% of patients you fix with AP screws? No, this rate has dropped even further. And we do it, as Paulina pointed out, uh, nowadays and recommended only if you can really see this large and type 4 fractures when you can really see The, the fracture through the fibula fracture. And sometimes we have elderly patients which we don't want to put into the prone position. Then we try to do that. And of course, we did it for several years. Of course, you can try to indirectly reduce the posterior uh, fragment and get it there and then uh, try to get that screw across. And this can perfectly fit if you're good at that. So if for any reason you don't want to put the patient in a prone or lateral position, and if you can nicely see the fracture through the fibula fracture, which is the so-called Weber trick, then of course you can do that. But several studies have shown that for smaller fragments, that a direct posture approach gives better reduction and also more stable fixation, particularly for those smaller fragments. Actually, in our hands, when we perform CT scans postoperatively after introducing AP screws, we regularly see that they might cross the incisura, they might not be in the fragment, and all these sorts of things. To place these AP screws correctly is not easy at all. Do you agree on that? Absolutely. And maybe one more hands-on question for the open reduction. When you have those smaller multifragmentary interposing fragments, what do you do with them? Do you try to put them back in place if we say it's five by five millimeters or would you rather resect it and go for the gap and hope that the, the body is going to fill up the, the gap as we know it from, from other fracture locations where we know that a gap is, is a lot better than a step off? Absolutely. So five by five is a good measure to try and fix them. And if they're too small for a screw, which I would say is a five by five fragment, then we either put a lost K wire in or a resolvable pin to get it there. So we fold the posterior fragment, the posterolateral fragment away, hinge it on the syndesmosis. Then we look at the joint space, we clear out tiny fragments, and then we reduce this, uh, this fragment using the tailors as a template and typically put a resolvable pin in. But a K-wire that goes through anteriorly and then is brought back also does the job nicely. And then we fold the posterior fragment back and then you don't see anything. So the posterior fragment really needs a good outline on the cortex, a good cortical read, and it needs a really perfect uh, lateral x-ray. That's why we start with the posterior malleolus, because once you have a fibula plate on, you don't see anything. And then the bad surprise comes when you do a post-op CT scan. Okay, thank you so much, Pauline. Thank you so much, Stefan, for this really interesting discussion and your really awesome study. We're looking forward for your future studies. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, for giving us the opportunity to present our results. And we're looking forward to your next studies too.